Hello everyone and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. Strikes in Yemen, Lebanon, Iraq, Syria and now Pakistan. All as Israel's war on Gaza continues and fears of a wider war intensify. Prince Turkey Al-Faisal joins me, the former Saudi intelligence chief. Then, as Barbie mania hits awards season, actress America Ferreira on its blockbusting impact. Also ahead, former Deputy National Security Advisor Matt Pottinger tells Walter Isaacson how Taiwan's recent election could transform U.S.-China relations. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiana Manpour in London. And we start in the Middle East, where the crisis may intensify as the U.S. redesignates Yemen's Houthis as a global terrorist entity. Of course, all roads lead back to Gaza and Israel. According to the health ministry in Gaza, more than 1% of the enclave's population has been killed since the war began, including more than 10,000 children. Speaking at the World Economic Forum in Davos, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken described it as heartbreaking. What we're seeing every single day in Gaza uh, is gut-wrenching. Um, and... The suffering we're seeing among innocent men, women, and children breaks my heart. The question is, what is to be done? We've made judgments about how we thought we could be most effective in trying to shape this in ways to get more humanitarian assistance to people, to get better protections and, and, and minimize civilian casualties. Blinken also talked about after the war, about the Arab world normalizing relations with Israel. But he insisted that Palestinian statehood is now crucial to, quote, a genuine integration, a point that was hammered home at different events in Davos by different U.S. officials and by Saudi Arabia's foreign minister. Joining me now is Prince Turki Al-Faisal, a senior member of the Saudi royal family and elder statesman. He served for many years as head of intelligence before representing Saudi Arabia as ambassador to Washington and London. And he's joining us from Jeddah now. Uh, welcome back to our program, Prince Turki. Let me start by asking you about this uh, reopening the idea of normalization. This was apparently practically on the table before October 7th and has obviously been, you know, swept away in the interim. What do you make of this being raised now seriously? Well, it has never been closed, uh, uh, Christian. Uh, there were several statements uh, before and after October 7th when Saudi officials uh, maintained that uh, reaching a settlement for the Palestinian issue will lead to normalization and mutual recognition with Israel. As you know, that's the whole basis of the Arab Peace Initiative that the kingdom proposed 21 years ago and Israel has refused to accept. So the, that, that door was never closed. Uh, what is perhaps uh, necessary now is instead of having Secretary Blinken lament the deaths of the, of the Palestinians, maybe he should go forward to implementing 
the United Nations resolution that called for the recognition of a Palestinian state. That is the only way that the conflict will be stopped finally. How do you get from there to here now in the midst of this really unprecedented war, the catastrophic events of October 7th and the, you know, th thousands and thousands, according to the Palestinians, of casualties inside Gaza? How do you how do you put statehood and an end to occupation back on the table? Very simple. You can simply announce it. You know, there is a UN resolution back in 1948, 181, I think it is, of the General Assembly that called for the establishment of two states in Palestine, a Palestinian state and an Israeli state. The Israelis, of course, went on and established that state. The Palestinians did not. Now you can simply say, we go back to Resolution 181 and the Palestinian state will come out. It doesn't require magic or Einsteinian logic or, or uh, genius uh, to figure a way out. Yes, but, I mean, you know, the fact is that that's been on the table for a long, long time and it hasn't happened. And there are endless peace proposals, including the one you just mentioned that Saudi Arabia presented in 2002. Uh, and now we have this terrible war. So I guess, given your experience, I just wonder whether you see any political way out and maybe, you know, as awful as it sounds, this terrible catastrophe might lead to a political resolution. Or is that just a pipe dream still? Well, we'll have to wait and see. Um, there is a lot of talk being to uh, put out by Americans, by Europeans about a two-state solution. But they've been talking the talk without walking the walk. I think what is needed is for them to put their feet down and simply go ahead and work with Saudi Arabia and other countries in the area to establish a Palestinian state and to end the fighting. The first important thing that must be done is to stop the killing. This is something that America and, and Europe has not yet reached as, a, as an immediate necessity. And I think there is more to be blamed on, on the West in that than anybody else. You went somewhat viral with a speech you made uh, two weeks after October 7th uh, at uh, Rice University in Texas at the James Baker Center. He, of course, was, you know, one of America's, you know, most esteemed uh, secretaries of state, has a huge amount of experience in the Middle East, obviously, uh, from the Gulf War on, and helped convene the first sort of Israeli-Palestinian dialogue uh, around the Madrid peace conference back in 19, right. yeah, 1991. I want to play a little bit of what you said and then we'll talk about it. I categorically condemn Hamas's targeting of civilian targets of any age or gender, as it is accused of. Such targeting belies Hamas's claims to an Islamic identity. There is an Islamic injunction against the killing of innocent children, women and elders, but equally I condemn Israel's indiscriminate bombing of Palestinian innocent civilians in Gaza and the attempt to forcibly drive them into Sinai. I condemn Israeli-targeted killing and the indiscriminate arrest of Palestinian children, women and men in the West Bank. Two wrongs don't make a right. Uh, it was a much longer speech. Um, I wonder 
how it was received by your American audience. And then I want to ask you a question about Hamas, because look, I guess Saudi Arabia has no love loss for Hamas, but it does have representation in Qatar. It is talked about by certain Arab leaders, uh, certain Arab analysts, about having to be part of any kind of solution. And I wonder whether you think that's even likely. And what Palestinian entity could be part of any new negotiations? Ms. Amanpour, I wrote an article, I think about two weeks ago, in which I said that Hamas has to declare it's joining the uh, Palestine Liberation Organization under the Palestinian recognition uh, for uh, its statehood in, in the area and to accept the uh, Palestine Liberation Organization position on peace with Israel. Uh, that is a, a compulsory first step for Hamas to become a party to any peaceful solution in the area. The, the other thing I called for was that should there be uh, a settlement that the present leadership of Hamas, of the PLO and of Israel should be excluded from any participation in any future political role. They have to pay for what they have done uh, in, in, in this process. Uh, all of them are, are failures. They have not achieved either strategic gains or military victory. So they have to be swept off the table and new leadership be brought to the fore. And then let it be, leave it to the Palestinian people to choose a leadership. It's not for the Israelis to dictate uh, Palestinian leadership, nor for us, nor for the United States. It's the Palestinian people that have to do that. Interestingly, Secretary Blinken also addressed the issue of leadership, in this case, the Israeli leadership, and said that would be up to the Israeli people after this war to, to, to decide whether it was going to have leadership that wanted to go towards a two-state solution and ending the occupation. But do you believe, because historically the United States has, has played the biggest heavyweight role in terms of quote-unquote, honest broker. Do you believe that today it has that same, you know, credibility? That is much under question. Yani, there seems to be a visceral embrace between the United States governments, both Republican and Democrat, with any Israeli leadership. That umbilical link between them is what keeps the United States losing any credibility as a mediator in this process. That said, we all accept that it is the United States that can pressure Israel to reach any accommodation. I remember when Henry Kissinger, in the old days after the Ramadan war, um, actually forced Golda Meir to resign in Israel because she was standing against his uh, disengagement talks. Uh, that was the time when, Israel, when the U.S. put a lot of pressure on Israel and got things accomplished. This is what we need to see now. Can we just talk about also, as I mentioned, the widening war? Uh, you've seen the, the Houthis, which are Iran proxies, firing at shipping uh, in the Red Sea, and recently the U.S. and U.K. firing back 
at their bases uh, in, um, in, in Yemen. Saudi Arabia spent a long time firing at the Houthis. Do you have any words of wisdom? Because you didn't solve that problem either. We were trying to solve it through political means. We never uh, felt that military means were going to solve the, the situation. And that's why we worked with the United States and with the United States and with the UK and other countries, with Sweden and so on, to establish some roadmap for peace in Yemen between Yemenis. And we were almost there. Yeah, there was an announcement by the UN representative to the Yemen of a roadmap for peace between the Houthis and the legitimate government. But unfortunately, the Gaza affair upended all of that. And uh, we go back to the initial uh, issue, which is solve the Palestinian problem. And that will open the doors for peace, not just in, in Palestine, but in Lebanon, in Syria, in Yemen, and in other places as well. This is the same thing that we've been telling the Americans and the Europeans since 1948. You have to be fair to the Palestinians and give them their state. You know, you condemn Hamas very viscerally, but you also wrote that, you know, I'm just going to get this right so I don't misquote you. You accused Hamas of sabotaging the peace process, uh, but you also wrote that they put the Palestinian, um, in a recent interview, awakened the world to the existence of a Palestinian cause. Um, I want you to explain that a little bit because, I mean, let's face it, you all also have a lot of power. And there wasn't a huge amount of uh, love for the Palestinian cause when the UAE made their normalization. And who knows, if it hadn't been for this war now, whether Saudi Arabia would have insisted that there be an end to occupation and a Palestinian state, as everybody seems to say now, in return for normalization. Well, that's why Hamas has to be brought under control so that it cannot be uh, a spoiler of any peaceful solution to the Palestinian problem. Uh, but the way that the situation has been left with Israel weakening the Palestinian Authority, and actually it was Israel that was financing Hamas, bringing Qatari money and handing it to, uh, to, the, uh, to the Hamas people. Mr. Netanyahu made that a cardinal uh, uh, political uh, practice that he did for many years. This is un un unacceptable, and uh, we see the results, Yanni, that uh, it's more conflict and more, more indecision and more uh, everything going up in the air. But the only way that you can reach a solution is if you go back to the originals of the problem. The problem is the occupation of Palestine by Israel. Mm -hmm. Israel has to give up Palestine in order for the other issues to be put in place. When you say give up Palestine, can you just please be clear about what you mean? Well, it has to withdraw according to resolutions 242, 338 of the United Nations Security Council and uh, the Arab Peace Initiative and the roadmap of the quartet. All the solutions are there, they, you know, defining how Israel can, can with, uh, you know, leave Palestine to become a state. Uh, it's, it's not uh, something miraculous that needs to be done. So you were intelligence chief for a long time and you've been, you know, around for a long, long time dealing with this issue and many others in the region. Um, when you see 
you said, you know, Hamas needs to be brought under control. That's what Israel says that it's trying to do and doing in Gaza. They say that they've, I think they say that they've dismantled uh, Hamas control, at least in parts or all of northern Gaza. Do you think this is going to be what does it? I don't think Israel can do it. It has to be done by the Palestinian people. They're, they're not going to allow yeah, the Israelis to do their stuff for them. Uh, there has to be, as I mentioned, and there has to be a recognition of a state of Palestine and the stop of the, of the, of the killing, have a ceasefire in, in, uh, in Gaza. And then you can talk about how the procedures can be taken from there. Uh, and Hamas has to declare its alignment with the Palestinian Authority. It has to give up its uh, previous positions of not accepting a, a peace uh, solution with, uh, with Israel. Um, so these are things that can be worked out, but once the ceasefire is in, put in place, then we can work together with the United States and the United Nations and figure out how we can uh, go forward. So I talked about the Houthis a moment ago, but do you see any real evidence, and are you concerned, that this whole thing spins out into a wider war? And I just listed the number of countries where we've seen military activities in just in the last couple of weeks. You've got Iran hitting into Pakistan, into Iraq, into, you know, other places. What, what do you see, and, and obviously the Hezbollah-Israel trading fire in the northern border there. Do you see it, it spinning into a wider crisis? I hope not. But I don't think the Iranians wish for a wider crisis. I don't think they want to be bombed, for example, uh, by Israel or by the United States. And that's why they use their, their uh, militias, whether it is Hezbollah in Lebanon or uh, the Houthis in, uh, in Yemen, or some of the militias in, in Iraq uh, to do their bidding. Uh, we just saw the day, uh, day before yesterday, and I think yesterday, uh, Iran launching uh, missiles and, and drones uh, into Iraq and into Pakistan. Uh, that is totally unacceptable. But uh, it is something that the, these are the tools that Iran uses to further its aims. I don't think it wants confrontation with the United States, at least not as far as going into direct war with the United States. You, you talked about Henry Kissinger and, and you, you mentioned, you know, shuttle diplomacy and, you know, the U.S. impact in the years past. Do you see, when well, we sort of touched on whether you thought the U.S. still had the credibility to be able to do that, but it is the only heavyweight that that has that convening power. So, I mean, do you see that kind of leadership being at least willing to be deployed now? It was interesting to see at Davos how there's a confluence of, of both the National Security Advisor, the Secretary of State, as I said, your own foreign minister, talking about how the future should shape up there with the, with the Palestinian statehood as the end goal. And even the Jordanian, former Jordanian foreign minister said, that should be something that's given an actual reasonable timeline, like let's say three to five years, he said. Well, I remember with you, Ms. Amanpour, um, when Kissinger uh, and, and America at the time, President Nixon,
came to the rescue of Israel in, during the, the, the Ramadan war by uh, sending all of that armament and support when Israel dearly conceded defeat uh, in, uh, in that war. Uh, they got a lot of political cards out of that. And one of them was to, as I mentioned, to uh, push uh, Golda Meir out of office and uh, have the disengagement talks. Mr. Biden's embrace of Mr. Netanyahu only a few days after October 7th, I think, gives him that kind of card uh, to play. And uh, as I see from polling done in, in Israel, Mr. Biden is more popular in Israel than Mr. Netanyahu. So that should be something that uh, Mr. Biden can play, as well as Secretary Blinken, his, his statements about, you know, going to Israel as a Jew and not as an American had, a, had an impact on the, on the Israeli public there. So uh, these are cards that the U.S. can use to push Israel, and they're not going to push them into, into, into hell. They want to push them into a peaceful situation. This is what is so amazing about the um, present Israeli government resisting uh, the calls for a ceasefire and other things that the, the world wants them to do. And finally, I want to ask you about the idea of forcible dis, you know, displacement or transfer of the Palestinian population. Uh, you know that, well, certainly at the beginning, there was a feeling that they, the Israelis were trying to push Gazans into Egypt via Rafah to, you know, sort of empty the West Bank into, into Jordan. And at that time, the president of Egypt and the king of Jordan made very, very clear that that was by no way acceptable and they wouldn't allow it. Do you think that is a done deal now? Or do you, do you worry that, you know, trying to force the Palestinian population out is still on the cards, you know, by some in Israel? Well, I have to go by what Israel is doing. It is, as I mentioned, and as you mentioned, there was a talk about displacement of Palestinians into Egypt by Israelis. And some, one of them, actually, one of them, a minister even recommended using the atom bomb on Gaza to blow it off the, earth, the, the, the surface of the earth. So that is one thing. But look what they're doing in the West Bank while everybody's attention is on Gaza. They're, they've already arrested, I don't know, six or 7,000 Palestinian residents of the West Bank under whatever uh, excuses that they have put up. They have killed over 500 Palestinians since October 7th. Um, that is not a sign that they want the Palestinians to stay where they are. Uh, and I'm reminded of 1948, Yanni, uh, when we heard even Israeli soldiers who participated in that war talking about a deliberate policy by the Israelis then to create fear among the Palestinians by genocide and by murder and by driving them out of their homes. So that has been a consistent Israeli policy since 1948. We'll and see. I hope that the world would not allow them to do that anymore. We'll see what happens in, in this case now. Thank you so much, Prince Turkey bin Faisal. Tomorrow, Mark Regev, senior advisor to Prime Minister Benjamin, Benjamin Netanyahu, will join me. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. 
Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Next tonight, one of the most talked about movie moments of the year, this breakout scene in the billion-dollar blockbuster Barbie. It is literally impossible to be a woman. We have to always be extraordinary. But somehow we're always doing it wrong. You have to never get old, never be rude, never show off, never be selfish, never fall down, never fail, never show fear, never get out of line. I'm just so tired of watching myself and every single other woman tie herself into knots so that people will like us. America Ferreira there as the non-Barbie Gloria with a speech that moved audiences around the world. As awards season goes into high gear, I spoke to the actress just before she nabbed the See Her Prize at the Critics' Choice Awards in Los Angeles. It's given to women who advocate for gender equality with the decisions they make on and off screen. Here's our conversation. America Ferreira, welcome to the program. Thank you. How surprised were you at the huge impact that monologue had, your speech <laughs> in Barbie, which was already such a successful film. It was amazing to see how it hit the audiences and, and what the responses were. I know that when I, when I first read the script, everything before and after and including the monologue, we have to always be extraordinary. But somehow we're always doing it wrong. I know that I was just blown away and it was all just so unexpected. And as a woman, I was just so excited, you know, that, that you know, it's the Barbie movie that no one asked for, that no one thought we needed, you know? And, and, and kind of subversively, seriously feminist. Yes, yes. And nobody believed that. They thought it was just going to be another telling of a, of a really incredible doll that so many millions of girls around the world played with. Yeah, and it could have been that, you know? It very easily could have been something bright and fun and exciting and probably would have made a lot of money and, and been successful, but... But what Greta and, and her partner Noah did with the script and then Greta as the director creating this world, it was so generous and it was so exciting. And, you know, as an adult woman, mother, you know, to get a third of the way into the script and then to meet this, this adult, real, flawed, you know, insecure, but having ambition woman, like struggling to be, you know, so many things to, to so many different people. It was so exciting to feel 
like we had a voice in the story. And, you know, it, that I felt that way, independent of being asked to be a part of it, just as a woman in the world. How did you come to get this role? Yeah. And did you, were you a bit nervous about accepting a role about a plastic doll? Well, I had no desire to be in a Barbie movie. I didn't grow up playing with Barbies. I didn't, you know, the idea of a Barbie movie wasn't necessarily exciting to me, but the idea of Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie being behind it was exciting to me. And so when I read the script, it was just all right there. Like every expectation, I didn't, I didn't even know what to expect, you know, but every, everything that you imagine is just totally turned on its head. And like I said before, like seeing how many perspectives were included and that, and that this wasn't just, you know, a bubblegum pop movie for, you know, people who are already fans of Barbie or who like want to see bright colors or really want to see Ryan Gosling in no t-shirt <laughs> and Margot Robbie wear really cute clothes. It really had something to say. As you said, it was very fun as well, as well as the, um, the seriousness. We were going to watch a clip of your character, Gloria, and the daughter, Sasha. I love rollerblades. Where are we going? Barbie land. What? Mom, are you really going to let Barbie take you and your tween daughter to an imaginary land? Yes, and you want to know why? Because I never get to do anything. I didn't even go on that cruise I won at your school raffle because I didn't have enough vacation days and your dad's allergic to sun. Oh, what about dad? You can't just leave him. He'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, he'll be fine. Ready for fun? What was that scene like to do? What was what was the, you know, the impact of all of that? I loved that shooting that whole sequence and what that whole sequence of of Gloria driving the car in the car chase and then getting on rollerblades and it's such wish fulfillment. But to put a grown adult mother, working wife, woman in the middle of that, who gets to be the center of the adventure and who does finally get to say like, I'm gonna do what I wanna do. And this is the crazy thing I wanna do. It was so fun. And as a woman, as a mother, it resonated so deeply. So yes, we're having fun, but we're also talking about something so true in our culture. And so is, zeitgeist, right yes, on the zeitgeist. Yes. It's almost like a Trojan horse right. for those who are afraid of feminism, yes. I think. Certainly some women still are. They don't even like to say the word. Right. A certain number of men are still you know, worried about it. The idea of doing what you all did through humor and through fun must have been kind of the way to make it even more accessible. Absolutely. I mean, I think in a way... It, to, to bring people into something that is maybe uncomfortable for them, it, you have to make it a party. You have to make it irresistible. You have to, 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 to make it more fun over here than what's happening over there so that people perk up and listen and show up and then get exposed you know, underneath the laughter to something that they weren't expecting to get hit with. And I mean, that's the brilliance of, of Greta. And, and I know there's been conversations about like, well, this isn't very, you know, advanced. It's not saying anything we don't already know. First of all, there are plenty of people who don't know. Um, there are countries around the world that banned this film for what it is and what it's saying. There's plenty of young women and people of all genders who've never had the words or thought about, about patriarchy and the role of women in the way that this film illuminates. And, and I think that we're in trouble if, if what we need is for everybody to be at an advanced entry level to what we want them to understand. Like, we've got to meet each other where we are and have a conversation, whether whatever it's about, 
inviting people in and not trying to speak down to people and say, well, this is the right way to talk about your experience as a woman. But you've been doing this for a while. You're also politically active. And, you know, even since Ugly Betty, you've been really forging this path for identity, for having that common commonality of conversation and listening to the other, hearing the other. What was it like for you when you, you know, got stuck into the Ugly Betty role? I loved playing Betty. I mean, I think the opportunities that came my way had everything to do with how the industry saw me, how the world saw me. And how did they see you? Well, everything was a lot about like, I was there to, to fulfill an ethnicity or I was there to fulfill a body type. And that from the outside, you know, I, I got these opportunities because they, they did check those boxes. But my role as the actor, as the artist, was to make that stereotype a full, whole human person. And that's the opportunity in storytelling, to, to, to give someone back their humanity through telling their story beyond a stereotype. And, you know, what I've come to really believe throughout my 20 plus years of working and being also an advocate um, in, in a number of issues is that all we ever do is storytell. All we ever do is tell stories about who matters, about who deserves what, about who's allowed their humanity and who isn't, whether that's in TV, film, politics, business, war. We are always telling and then believing and internalizing stories about who we are. And that creates the world we live in. What is it like for you, starting off and now, being a Latina representative? If I'm not mistaken, I don't know whether I, I read this wrong, but I think it said that you're the only Latina to have won an Emmy for a TV series? For Yeah, for lead actress. Is that actually possible? It's, it's true. It's true. You know, uh, it, it brings me no joy to, to be the first or to be the only, you know, I think that that's um, any novelty around getting to be exceptional in any way um, at the cost of the invisibility of, of everyone else who is like you is it's really there's there's no joy in that. Do you have any reason to believe that, I mean, as time marches on, that you know, people are understanding this deficit in, in your in your business? Um, yes, I believe that it's changing. I mean, the truth is, is like you can't win awards for roles and opportunities that don't exist. You know, I, I look at the acting categories in television, at the lead acting categories in television. They are very, very monoethnic <laughs> and and you know and it's not because we're leaving out some fabulous performance that happened the opportunities aren't there they don't exist and 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 sadly and and enragingly there are opportunities that should be going to latinos when you you know when you talk about you know roles based on real people who were latino being cast with with white actors um, or non-Latino actors, it's it it is very very difficult to imagine that any of the of the awards and the acknowledgement side of things will change until the opportunities change. You're about to take on your first movie directing yeah, yeah. position, yes, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Can you tell us what it's about? Yes, yeah. I'm directing a feature film for Orion. Um, uh, based on a YA, an amazing YA novel called I'm Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter. 
And it's a beautiful coming of age story. In a lot of ways, very full circle for me. Um, I My first film ever was uh, Real Women Have Curves. I was 17. It was this beautiful coming of age story. And and it's very it's a, it's a very different world and different, um, it's a different story, but there are similar themes. And so to come back around and, and to start my feature directing career is very exciting. And all the characters are presumably Mexican. Um, many of them, most of them. And are, you will be yeah. casting them all from yes. the Latino yeah. community. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. yeah. So that's a statement. Yes. Well, and you know, Eva Longoria just did that with her amazing directorial debut in Flaming Hot, which I think became for their studio the number one streaming premiere. And even, you know, what we know from the research that's coming out of Annenberg and their inclusion work is that not only is it more difficult to get our stories told and get our stories made, but then when they are made, there's such a difference in how they get supported, how they get uh, how they get marketed, marketed yeah. how they get written about by critics and talked about in the culture. And so it's all of a piece. And that's why it matters so much that we that we have the conversations and that we don't just assume one big, wonderful success is going to lead to things changing. We have to point and we have to keep saying, look, look at what this is and, and what it defied. And let's start changing our minds about this. And, so and finally, the strike, the AI part of it. Are you satisfied with the way the strike was ended in terms of protecting you all from the dangers of AI that you had you know, put down as, as a reason for the strike? I don't, I don't really think that it's possible to be satisfied. Um, I think there was a lot of relief of, about being able to get people back to work. I think that it's a bigger problem than our industry. It seems to be global and, and like something that needs federal regulation, something that really needs our leaders, our our country's leaders, our world leaders, to step up and to and to protect um, people in every industry, in every country, from from something we're going to face together. I don't I don't think it's uh, it's something that we can necessarily solve in in an actor strike. Do you have any political dreams? Do you think you'd ever run for office? I don't have any political dreams, but I but I can never help myself from being an engaged citizen of the world and 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 always wanting to do my part as a global citizen as a US citizen of of you know advocating for for what matters to me America Ferrera thank you so much thank indeed you. thank you I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts.
Next, we turn to Taiwan, where people voted for a historic third term for the Democratic Progressive Party. President-elect Lai Ching-tae won more than 40%. So what does it mean for relations with mainland China and diplomacy with other nations like the United States? Matt Pottinger is a former U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor, and he's joining Walter Isaacson to discuss this now. Thank you, Christian and Matt Pottinger. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Walter. So we had these elections in Taiwan, somewhat of a unnerving surprise if you're worried about our relationships with China, uh, very much of a, uh, a government that will try to keep its democratic independence from China. Tell us how to assess it and what happened there. Yeah, well, you, what you had was um, the democratic expression of a society that's one of the most successful democracies in the world. Uh, people showed up in uh, in huge numbers, uh, percentages of turnout that, that should uh, really be the envy of the democratic world. And and what people decided to do was something unusual. This is the first time that the uh, a, a party has been returned for, in essence, a third term uh, uh, of, of uh, office um, after it had really been in sort of eight year cycles that that uh, the opposition would switch with the ruling party. But um, I, I think what you're seeing is, uh, in part, the opposition vote was split between a couple of candidates, uh, which helped boost uh, Vice President Lai to the, to the presidency. But he still obtained 40-plus uh, percent of the vote. The president-elect has said that this was an expression of democracy over authoritarianism, the great struggle in this world today. Do you think he's going to be able to get along with China or is that going to provoke China uh, to try to assert more control over Taiwan? Yeah, look, I, the, the truth is if Beijing had played things differently and they still have the opportunity to play things differently, um, they probably could have had a somewhat productive uh, relationship with the current outgoing president, um, President Tsai Ing-wen. Uh, when President Tsai was elected eight years ago, uh, she made she went out of her way to, in some sense, buck her party platform in order to extend an olive branch to Beijing. Uh, she she uh, made clear, you know, she did several of the things that that Beijing would have wanted to hear, uh, but Beijing decided rather than than to build on that and start a dialogue with uh, uh, with her government, they froze her out. And for eight years, they have not actually engaged in any kind of productive dialogue, barely any dialogue at all, uh, other than perhaps a little bit of back channel uh, uh, diplomacy. And, and so uh, here we are again, you know, Beijing's uh, preferred candidates did not win uh, for a third time in a row. Beijing could actually uh, open a dialogue. Uh, and I, my, my guess would be that uh, Vice President Lai, now President-elect Lai, uh, would would uh, be willing uh, to uh, to entertain the idea of, of some kind of dialogue. I just don't think Beijing is going to offer it. Uh, Beijing is more interested in control than in dialogue, uh, and uh, and and so uh, unfortunately, I think that Beijing is going to miss uh, yet another opportunity here. And to what extent do you think that this could lead to a military? confrontation over Taiwan and what would the timetable be? Does this speed up that timetable? So 
Xi Jinping has made clear that he's impatient. Uh, uh, he, he doesn't talk the way that his predecessors did about there being time, so long as Taiwan doesn't declare formal independence, that, that time is on Beijing's side. That's not how Xi Jinping sees it. Uh, but th the other thing is that Xi Jinping has really changed the game. It, 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 a, a lot of his, his predecessors' rhetoric about Taiwan was designed to restrain Taiwan, to, to ensure that Taiwan did not declare independence. Xi Jinping is not trying to maintain the status quo the way that the rhetoric might have suggested by some of his predecessors. Instead, what he's trying to do is, is compel Taiwan to move uh, toward uh, unification under the People's Republic of China. And, uh, and that is not something that the vast majority of people in Taiwan want to see. If China right now decided to blockade uh, Taiwan or decided to move on it in a military way, does, what, would the, what do you think the U.S. should do? And does the U.S. have the capacity right now to fight a war? Yeah, well, look, the, the, the lesson from Ukraine is that deterrence would have been a whole lot cheaper than war. So let's succeed at deterrence. We can do that. We know how to deter. Uh, we did it during the Cold War. It's why the Cold War stayed cold. But we were spending twice as much, Walter, uh, in the 1980s under Reagan as a percentage of GDP on defense that, as we're spending right now. This is a mistake. This is a mistake. It, it, we, we need to be... Uh, showing that we have decisive capabilities, conventional capabilities, that in fact, we already have the technology and the platforms to deliver. It's just that we haven't been building enough of these anti-ship missiles. We haven't been making sure that our attack submarines um, are, are cycling out of port uh, and maintenance uh, quickly enough uh, to, to be a, a, a real problem for Beijing. Let, let's focus on that. Look, if, if Beijing ends up pulling the trigger, uh, it makes that fateful decision that Vladimir Putin has made. Um, I, I actually believe that President Biden has been pretty clear. I don't think I don't think he was speaking off the cuff. You can't. You might be able to say that he was speaking off the cuff once or twice, but President Biden has now said four times, uh, quite deliberately, that he would uh, back uh, Taiwan militarily uh, in order to prevent a uh, what he called an unprecedented. Uh, uh, military attack on Taiwan. I think we should take the president at his word. Well, the president said that, and that goes against what was official, I think, U.S. policy, which is sort of a strategic ambiguity. Well, we don't quite say outright that we would get involved militarily if there were an attack by China on Taiwan. Should we change U.S. policy and make it unambiguous that we give defense protection to Taiwan? You know, I would argue that President Biden already has uh, made that shift. Um, you know, it, it is not the staff of the president, but the president under Article 2 of our Constitution who makes our foreign policy. Uh, I, I think we should take President Biden uh, literally, <laughs> take him at his word, and and that in, in essence, he has already um, uh, removed at least a lot of that fog of ambiguity from the policy. I think it would be unwise for any other presidential candidate to back away from uh, from the, the position that President Biden has staked on this. Uh, and, and I think that that will actually uh, help keep the peace. Um, you know, wars, wars begin with optimism. Uh, it, it's, one of the, it's one of the things that we often overlook or, or, or forget because uh, it sounds counterintuitive. But if you look at the beginnings of wars, 
throughout history, whether they were launched by, you know, a, a democracy like the United States or in, or, or or by dictatorships. Uh, it, it often starts with this idea, this kernel of optimism that, my goodness, I think I think that through war, we can achieve things that we couldn't achieve through diplomacy, A, and B, I, I think the war will go really well for us. This is a this is a this is a miscalculation that all sorts of governments make, including our own. Uh, has has believed that wars will be short and decisive, uh, when in fact they turn out to be murky, incredibly costly, and long. The troops don't come home by Christmas the way the way that uh, that that leaders often uh, uh, promise. So you are an advisor to President Trump. You're on the National Security Council. What is his view, do you think, and what should it be? What would it be on this notion of being unequivocal that if, if China goes after Taiwan militarily, we will defend Taiwan militarily? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I can speak for, for what the policy was during President Trump's uh, uh, last term in office. I think that over the course of his uh, time in office, he he came to appreciate um, how problematic a uh, a crisis in the Taiwan Strait would be for the U.S. for our for our economic prosperity, for our alliances with Japan and South Korea and the Philippines and and Australia and others. So he was uh, careful uh, to uh, uh, you know not 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 say exactly what he would do. I, I remember him actually saying, look, uh, I, I'm not going to say what I'm what, exactly what I'm going to do, but but Xi Jinping needs to understand that uh, uh, that, that this would be a, a pretty serious matter. Uh, so so in, in essence, I think President Trump was sustaining that tried and true uh, policy of, uh, as you called it, strategic ambiguity. I think that President Biden has now moved the needle uh, to something that is uh, more than ambiguous, <laughs> uh, less ambig ambiguous. It, it is less ambiguous in essence. So, uh, so I, I don't know what what uh, President Trump's um, policy would be in a second term, uh, but uh, but I, I think it would be a miscalculation on Xi Jinping's part to test um, uh, any U.S. president. Let me ask you something personally. Uh, I mean, you work with Trump both on that and on COVID, as it came out of, uh, out of uh, uh, you know, across from China to the U.S. Uh, and I've read a lot of the things you've said, and you too have a bit of ambiguity now in your feelings about the Trump administration. So many people you worked with, and like Defense Secretary Esper and others, has said he would be dangerous now. Tell me what your your thoughts are about looking at the possibility of a second Trump term. I don't want to predict how this is all going to turn out. What I will say is that um, uh, any president who uh, indulges isolationism, uh, any president who doesn't have the back of American allies, whether they are in the Western Pacific, like South Korea and, and Japan and the Philippines, or whether they're in Europe, our, our, our incredible uh, alliance structure with NATO, it's the most successful uh, you know, um, multilateral alliance probably in history. Uh, any president who does not have the back of those alliances and institutions uh, will be um, uh, welcome, in essence, by America's adversaries, because 
America's adversaries view those alliances as the primary obstacle to them achieving their aggression, you know, their aggressive, expansionist, revanchist ambitions. So uh, President Trump in his first term, I think, uh, did uh, maintain the strength of those alliances. He, he, he put a, a lot of fear into, into our allies, particularly in Europe, uh, where uh, they were afraid that the United States would back away. But in the end, those, those allies stepped up, spent more money, and President Trump reaffirmed those alliances. I, I very much hope that that would be his policy in a second term if, in fact, um, he, he's elected come November. Well, wait, wait a minute. I mean, he has not been supportive of either Ukraine or NATO in this current uh, uh, situation, this current invasion by Russia into Ukraine. And I think I'm hearing you say that that really worries you, but you're parsing it a bit uh, too carefully there. Well, look, I, I don't think I don't think we should turn our back on Ukraine because it, the, the cost of Ukraine falling is going to be radically higher than the cost of us supporting brave Ukrainians uh, to, to uh, fight a war for their national survival. Uh, that If Ukraine falls, um, the, the cost to NATO uh, of even just continuing to deter Russia from going further is going to be dramatically greater than uh, the, the relatively small, I'm sorry, but it, it is in, in real terms, a pretty small investment. We're not putting American lives at risk. We're not shedding American blood. We're helping brave Ukrainians uh, defend their country so that we don't end up with uh, Russia threatening our NATO allies and, and, and pushing us to the brink of a third world war. Um, I, I think it would be unwise to turn our backs. Europe has to do a lot better. President Trump, I, I give credit, particularly in his first term, to basically pointing out how uh, European support for their own alliance structure has fallen short. Uh, I, I think that there's... a, a an opportunity uh, to get to get the uh, Europeans to do more for their own defense, uh, but at the end of the day, he did he did still stick with that alliance structure. Well, wait, don't you worry about the rising isolationism? There's a rising isolationism on the populist yeah. right of the Republican Party. Uh, yeah, it, from it's funny. I, there's I, I agree with you. Uh, it's and it reminds me of the 1930s. The isolationism is not limited to that. Uh, 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 a, a sizable chunk of the Republican Party. It's there's a different brand of it that has uh, sort of sneaked up on us in the in the Democratic Party as well. It, it has different motivations and it has different expressions. But nonetheless, we're in a very 1930s moment right now, Walter. Where um, you know, as I've been reading a lot of 1930s history uh, over the, over the course of the last several months, I've been struck by the similarities. And, and I'm hopeful that we learn the lessons, remember the lessons that we learned in blood that had to be written in blood in the 20th century so that we don't fall into the trap of, of isolationism, believing that, uh, that the two oceans are going to keep us safe uh, from the sorts of uh, dynamics that we're seeing play out in Europe or in the Middle East, or uh, if we really play our cards badly in the Western Pacific as well. The Chinese foreign minister has been talking about trying to help negotiate the Palestinian, uh, the Hamas-Israel situation. We've spent a lot of time over the past 60 years 
trying to establish the U.S. as a primary player in the Middle East. Do you think it's a good idea for us to want or to allow China to be involved in the Middle East and to try to sort this out? Is that in our interests? Well, look, I, I, I think that we've to start. The question almost answers itself when you consider the fact that Beijing has been one of the um, uh, one of the agitators that has inflamed the problems that we're dealing with in the Middle East right now. Uh, Beijing is the chief propaganda and diplomatic supporter for Russia. Uh, Russia has provided uh, a, a lot of diplomatic and possibly material support for Hamas. Remember, right after the massacre of, of innocent Israelis on the 7th of October, Vladimir Putin's government hosted a trilateral meeting in Moscow between the leaders of Hamas and, and leaders of Iran. Uh, uh, Beijing has provided propaganda support uh, for Hamas through uh, platforms like uh, the Chinese Communist Party controlled TikTok uh, uh, platform. Uh, we've seen uh, uh, Beijing uh, standing up for, uh, uh, you know, basically undermining Israel and, and its uh, need for security. Even, even Israel's borders have been erased from uh, Chinese websites like Alibaba.com and Baidu.com. So, so Beijing is an agitator here. It is not. It is not interested in maintaining stability. If we, if we, if you read the speeches of Xi Jinping, he talks quite a lot about chaos. He said in, in a speech in 2021, "Chaos is the defining word for our era." And then he went on in that speech to make clear that he thought that was something advantageous to China and its ambitions. That chaos was something bad for Western democracies, uh, and, and as he said. You know, the West is is uh, fading and the East is rising China's authoritarian agenda. So I, I don't think that China's really interested in, in being a constructive partner with us in the Middle East or pretty much any other part of the world. Matt Pottinger, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Walter. Thanks for having me. And that is it for now. Thank you for watching. Goodbye from London. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.